previously on the Paperboy Prince podcast. And right now, this is a lecture, uh, more not so much of a lecture, more of a talk called Black Lives and White Terror. You know, I focus a lot on like happy stuff and fun stuff. And, and this is the last day of Black History Month that we're doing it, actually the last few hours right now. And I wanted to get into some of the heavy stuff that kind of inspired me to take the route that I've taken. Also like things that I was educated on from a young age. The kind of subtext of this talk is also like media and how media is used to shape the perception of the black community. Next thing we'll talk about is Rosewood, um, which a lot of people don't know about and surprised me. John Singleton made a movie about it, which he's the same person that made a lot of popular black movies, but the Rosewood Massacre. Do y'all know about the Rosewood Massacre? Rosewood Massacre is intense. There's, this movie is out that kind of like dramatizes it and, and shows you what happened. Um, but basically, long story short, Rosewood is about a town in Florida that was an all-black town, about 300 people. And a white woman said that she was, that she had been attacked by a black person in a town over, in a town maybe 10, 20, 30 miles over. And basically that led the white people in that town to come to the black town and burn it to the ground, kill pretty much a large amount of people there, women, men, and children, um, hanging people, terrorizing people, burning churches, burning schools, um, and yeah. So, so we're gonna go through this real quick just so you can get some, hear some of the like details and facts in it. Um, originally, the town was originally settled in 1845 by both black and white people. Okay, the employment was provided by pencil factories, but the cedar tree population soon became decimated and white families moved away in the 1890s. By the 1920s, Rosewood's population of 200 was made up of black citizens except for one white family that ran the general store there. And this was actually a pretty uh, affluent black town of, of black people that had their own economy, that worked in some other towns, that had their own businesses, families. Uh, so the town was doing pretty good. It was pretty much just a black town. So 22-year-old Fanny, I love hearing the ages too because it's, it's good to know like the ages people were. Um, yeah, no, they burned down the entire town, uh, and it never existed after that. Like it's it, it stopped to it ceased to exist. The neighbor found Taylor covered in bruises, claiming a black man had entered the house and assaulted her. Uh, the incident was reported to the sheriff, with uh, Taylor specifying that she had not been raped. Her husband escalated the situation by gathering an angry mob of white citizens to hunt down the culprit. He also called from the help of a white residents in neighboring counties, so all the like cities nearby, called them all up. And uh, in one of these towns, there was 500 Ku Klux Klan members who were in Gainesville, Florida for a rally. Mind you, there were only 200 people that lived in Rosewood. They called up... Uh, all the white people nearby, and then 500 Klan members that were in town for a rally. Mind you, 
this also lets you know how big white supremacy was at the time that there were just 500 person clan rallies like popping off like it was nothing um cops found out that a black prisoner named jesse hunter had escaped a chain gang and they made him a immediate suspect they started searching for him 25 people mostly children took refuge in the home of sarah carrier when armed white men surrounded the house thinking that jesse hunter was there they shot up the house with tons of shots they lit it on fire um, multiple people died children died women died the violence started escalating mind you this lasted couple a couple of days so newspapers started hearing about this people found out that white people had been killed in them trying to kill a bunch of black people some white people were killed and uh you know people trying to fight for their lives right the newspapers reported this and it was sounding like there was a race riot so even more white people, so black people were like, oh, I'm not going to Rosewood, right? And even more white people started coming to that town to uh, defend white supremacy and white sanctity. Yeah, many Rosewood citizens fled to the nearby swamps for safety, spending days hiding in them. Some attempted to leave the swamps, but were turned back by men working for the sheriff. So like, you weren't, mind you, that all of the neighboring towns were on high alert um, for any black people. Like, if you were black, they were ready to kill you because it was this whole race war and people were thirsty for blood and a white woman had been beat or something had happened and they weren't gonna stop till, till their bloodthirst was quenched. Um, and mind you, in this search, multiple people were killed. It was, it's a massacre. Okay, some black women and, and children escaped thanks to John and William Bryce, two wealthy brothers who owned a train. Aware of the violence in Rosewood and familiar with the population, the brothers drove their train to the area and invited escapees, but they refused to take in black men afraid of being attacked by white mobs. So they knew it was that real. They knew it was that real that they didn't even want to take in black men because they were afraid of being attacked by white mobs. All right, um... I don't want to spend too much time on that, but that's just like a crazy story. I also have on here Emmett Till I wanted to talk about. I just didn't want to make this too long. Okay, let's talk about Emmett Till. A lot of y'all already know about Emmett Till. And yeah, and that's true about Rosewood. Right after that, Black Wall Street, which I actually have on here as well. We won't have time to get to it, but was also... Uh, burned to the ground many people killed again if you're having a successful black community if black people are, are do, ever doing better than white people there's so many instances in history where they use force they use the government they use police they use whatever excuse they can to tear the black people down and there are macro versions of this where they do it to entire communities and micro versions where they do it um just to singular black people which is like the lynchings you know, but th they do it to a singular black person to signify to all of the black community, like, like no, like this isn't something we're rocking with. Emmett Till, a lot of people know about this story of Emmett Till, but basically he was 14 years old. I think it's interesting to talk about that because he's 14 years old. He's from the big city and he's in Mississippi visiting family. So 14 year old black kid who was lynched in Mississippi in 1955. So people who were raising 
people who were alive in 1955 are still alive today. He can very well still be alive today, right? Um, lynched in 1955 after being accused of offending a white woman in her family's grocery store. The brutality of the murder and the fact his killers were acquitted drew attention to the long history of violent prosecution of African-Americans in the United States. So Emmett Till was super important because that helped to kick off a lot of the big civil rights protests. But basically, he was in a store. Uh, he spoke to a 20-year-old white woman who wor worked at the store and her husband owned the store. And then a few days later, mind you, a few days later, this was in broad daylight, spoke to her at a store. I guess that she, he, the, the story is that he whistled at her and her husband and his friend went, kidnapped him in the middle of the night and uh, killed him, uh, beat him, killed him, lynched him as well. Um, and his body was dismembered and it got popular because his mother had an open casket funeral and uh, it became a big story. Jet Magazine became a big magazine because of that. Like they printed multiple versions of that Jet Magazine because that, that really helped to kick off the civil rights movement. Mind you, magazines were like social media is now. So it was like a viral thing. Um, I want to go into that more. There's so much to be said about that, but I want to like keep in the interest of time. Um, Fred Hampton. There's a movie out about Fred Hampton right now. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I want to talk about Fred Hampton because he was also young. He was 21 years old when he died. And, and you know, he was a revolutionary. Uh, and a lot of the lynchings that, that we saw earlier, they're made to seem like they're done by just random people that are, that are just like a person, wrong place, long time. But a lot of times these people are influential people in the black community. They might be a business owner. A lot of these people are like business owners, store owners, people who like employed lots of black people, pastors, uh, organizers, people who had rumors of being uh, rubble rousers, these types of words. So yeah, so Fred Hampton is an interesting one because at this point he had a name, right? 1969, there's uh, a lot of black power. Black power was the thing at this time. And... Yeah, he was a leader of the Black Panther Party. So young. Um, I want to talk about the raid. So the, and basically how he was killed. His life, there's so much to celebrate. And he's a big influence and inspiration for me. Um, but the raid and assassination is important as we talk about the, the terrorism, right? Because like, he's somebody who was doing so much at a young age. They really had to terrorize him in a certain way so that, so that it's stuck. At 4 a.m., the heavily armed police team arrives at the site, divided in two teams, eight for the front of the building, six for the rear. 4.45, they stormed the apartment. A single round was fired uh, that, that they said by one of the Black Panthers, and the cops ended up shooting 99, uh, over 99 shots. Um, there's also word that Fred Hampton was um, drugged before uh, because he was very slow to get up. Um, it happened late at night. You know, this happened real late at night. And he was killed right next to his fiance, who was carrying his baby, right? I think she was eight months pregnant with his child. And they're sleeping together. She's 21 years old at this time. I really had to stress the age because it's like so young, doing so much work. And the cops really did a number 
to to stop him. There's there's so much here, but after a break-in at an FBI office in Pennsylvania, the existence of COINTELPRO, an illegal counterintelligence program, was revealed and reported. With this program revealed, many activists and others began to suspect the police raid and the shooting of Fred Hampton were conducted under this program. One of the documents released was a, a, floor, a floor plan of his apartment. And this brings me a lot to like my personal experience. I've dealt with a lot of hate as an activist and as somebody fighting for change, as somebody trying to do things differently, you know, I kind of come with a fun, funny vibe because I don't want to end up a martyr. Um, and it's also easier for me to get that message across. But, you know, I would just doing protests. He will not divide us. That that was a protest that went viral. And, you know, it ended in my family getting threatened, saying they're going to kill me, they're going to kill my sisters, they're going to rape my my um, ex-girlfriend, and all, all this type of stuff that I was getting every day. I was getting hundreds of death threats a day. Uh, so many, and there was nothing I could do about it, nothing anyone could do or knew how to do. Um, they were calling me a pedophile, they were making up lies about me, putting it online. I got a bunch of my pages deactivated. Um, like fate, and I've been in a a Facebook commercial since then, and I've got had my Facebook pages deactivated, taken down because of this stuff. All this stuff is real, and when you step into a place of becoming a leader, someone who's doing protests, you also get this other type of warfare that comes at you, and it's not always just the force and the the killing; it's the uh, it's also these misinformation campaigns like COINTELPRO that happened with Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers and Stokely Carmichael and all of this stuff. You know, when I first started running for office and, and then I, when I started throwing more protests, right, this past summer, I had to get a restraining order against um, someone that was calling me hundreds of times a day breaking into my car, leaving, some of y'all saw on my Instagram, leaving comments on my page from fake pages saying they're going to hang me, calling me all type of coon, monkey, all this type of stuff. Um, and I know it was, it was them because they admitted to it. This stuff only escalated as I started throwing protests. Before that, it was none of that same energy. People didn't have that uh, same energy. But once, you know, you start to move in that, in that light, you know, and it goes back to like the Rosewood stuff we we're talking about of if people see a black person doing well. It goes back to the Fred Hampton stuff of when people see you fighting for your community in a, a unapologetic type of way, they want to tear that down. So I had people pulling, I had someone pull a knife on me. And, and basically what's happened is, because now I'm kind of talking about my personal experience. And as I started throwing pro protests, basically a mob of racist white women and white men and people of other races too that wanted to impress them or be friends by them or just were caught up in that. They started spreading lies about me, started spreading hate towards me, harassing me. And, you know, I'm trying to run a campaign. I'm, I'm trying to do what I'm trying to do. So I don't want to draw attention to that. Um, but you know, these things are very real things and I'm running out of time here. But yeah, this this mob, they actually, and it, what became one of the most 
terrorizing and scary moments for me was when one of these people who were supported by a, a bunch of white people that I have even tried to help because you know me, like I don't care what race you are. I'm spreading love to you. I'm trying to help people out. I'm trying to work with everyone. This person, this woman, this white woman, um, made multiple calls to the police in a day. They came much like the, the, the Fred Hampton situation. They came to my house at 2 a.m. Um, telling me I was accused of attempted murder, of kidnapping and of rape. And, uh, they pulled me, you know, out of the house. Quickly, they found out that it wasn't true. And I have I have video of it too. I want to share the video if I can get a window capture going. You know, uh, quickly they found out it wasn't true. You know, this is a thing that really happened. Um, tons of cops at my door. You know, uh, eight cops with hands on their guns at my door. How can I show this? I don't know how I can show the video on here, but I'll I'll share it and talk about it more. I'm going to start talking about this stuff more, uh, but I didn't want to talk about it at the time. The day that it happened, I wanted so bad to tell people because there had been so much hate, so many lies being spread by racist white people, um, people that who are also like who believe them and become uh, a part of that people who become they become a part of the mob, the same people, right? who would have in the 1915 been a part of that mob, you might not be the one with your hand on the rope choking me up, but you're the same person that is a part of that mob. We know that you're the same person, a part of that mob because you're siding with them, you're listening with them. And I peeped, I peeped the people that while I was throwing protests, they were saying Black Lives Matter. They wanted to post the video, they wanted to be a part of it, they wanted to show they're on the side. As soon as the after of effects of being an activist, the after effects of throwing a protest happen, they want to disappear. Um, they want to side with white supremacists. They don't want to do the research. They don't want to uh, talk to you and, and, and see what's happening. So, so it's two sides to it. One side are the racist mob that was coming after me and many other activists. It wasn't just me. It's other activists too that have to deal with this, the lies that are, I can't, I don't, can't speak on anybody else. That's why I'm speaking up for myself. But people who are lying, saying that I would do things that I would never do. And the thing is, they can't, you can't say that I'm dumb. You can't say I didn't go to college. You can't say that I'm out here hurting people, robbing people. You can't say that I'm mean, spreading these negative messages. So what can you say? You can use the oldest trope, right, of this country. Uh, you can use the oldest white supremacist trope, you know, sexually aggressive black male, insert white woman, and uh, whatever. That's that. That's all they can do and say about me. And then, of course, that that gets every single white person believing that uh, black people too, because that is what this country is founded on, and that's their way to try to take you down. And it's over a hundred years of evidence of this stuff. But you know, for me. This is one of the reasons I even talk about abolishing the police because I called the police. I called the police multiple times and reported. I said, hey, I have somebody stalking me. I have I have people outside of my house. I have people sending me death threats. I, like I have somebody on video attacking my car, knocking the windows out of my car and scratching it up and stuff like that. They come to me. They said, who was it? I said, oh, it this girl. Was, oh, is she black, Latina? I said, she's white. They're like, 
like they're not even believing and then have the nerve to not want to take the report. And, you know, so when people talk about abolishing the police or changing the police force, it's about one, we know the racist history of the police. We broke it down and talked about it here and how many, how often the police have condoned this type of mob mentality, killings and activities. So that's why we don't trust them. And two, when you actually need them to help you and save you, they're not there. They're nowhere to be found. They're not there. They're nowhere to be found. It's just crazy, man. And you know what? I had to get help. I personally had to get help when I talk about the terrorism, you know, because that to me was affecting how I was able to interact with people. I've always been such an open person. I respond to messages. I'm down to meet with people, all these things. I get a ton of messages. I stopped responding to messages from white women and white men out of like, I don't know if you're one of these people who are trying to hurt me, kill me, set me up. Um, I found out I was drugged by someone that I trusted um, and led into my circle and, and they had a crush on me or something like that and were drugging me in hopes of me letting my guard down around them, right? And somebody else told this to me and I, and, and I found out. So many things that were happening, so many attacks happening from so many different ways as an activist, no one to talk to about it. Um, people not really understanding the motivations. And then on top of that, as I'm getting more popular and there's a lot of love, there's so much love there that people don't really get that there's actual strong hate that comes with that and how hard it is to, to deal with that, like, and, and not add fuel to the fire, you know, still have your life, you know, just people like the craziest thing to me though, was having eight cops at my door with their hands on their guns and them telling me that I'm being accused of attempted murder, kidnapping and assault like that, that to me just while I'm planning protest and just after I had a protest. This happened during the summer. I, I didn't talk about it during the time because I didn't want to bring attention to that. We're doing so many dope things. I didn't want to bring attention to that. Um, and I didn't even know how to deal with that. I was honestly scared. That's why I stopped throwing protests. Uh, that's why, like I said, I stopped hanging out with certain people. I removed myself from certain people. Yeah, this is also why I was doing helping to lead some of the city hall protests and things of that nature, you know, and, and people don't support. You look at the activists in Ferguson, many of them dead afterwards, many of them in jail afterwards because the cops found a reason to get them in jail. Um, people caught them alone, were able to kill them. Um, and yeah, there's tons of white people, racist white people that have been raised by racists, that were raised by racists, that were raised by racists, that that racism doesn't disappear just because somebody's young and has Black Lives Matter in their bio. Listen, that racism does not disappear because somebody's young and they uh, watched a documentary on Netflix. No. It's still there. It's embedded in the fabric of this country. And that hate and that racism is levied against anyone that dares to stand up against it, that dares to stand for black people unapologetically. And that's what happened to me. And they used, and the messed up thing about it is they use a mob. Two messed up things. One, they use a mob. I showed you all with the um, lynchings that they use mobs because, hey, you know, people can save you if it's one person, two people. Black people to show up and save them when it's 500 people. It was a bunch of them. It's a mob of them, right? 
is designed to take you out, kill you, and terrorize and scare everyone else that might um, take your place. So first thing they try to do is come at you with a mob. And then they the second thing is use the same trope that's been used hundreds of years against black people in this country. And that's the sanctity of white women. Um, oh, you offended a white woman. We're going to hang you. We're going to kill you. And my job is to spread love. My job is not to live in fear. And that's why I don't even like to bring attention to things like this or lies and stuff like that. But the reason that it was so important for me too is because I see how this relates to the biggest, bigger picture. I see how so many activists, so many people that want to fight for change, whether that's in their job, whether that's at their school, decide against it because of the tactics that are used to slow activists down in their tracks. And for me, I'm so blessed because I'm equipped with all of this knowledge. I'm equipped with all of the um, guidance that I've gotten. You know, I really was raised by activists, by black activists and studied all this stuff growing up. So none of this is new to me or shocking to me. Again, I mentioned when we were throwing protests in 2016, in 2017, when Trump first got in office, you know, I, I I knew what a MAGA supporter was because I was getting the brunt of that. They were calling me a pedophile. They were, um, they showed up to my parents' church. And there's videos of all this stuff. They showed up to my parents' church, threatened the church. And, and the, the, the crazy thing is, is this is in the 2000s, but these were the same tactics from the 1800s, burning down churches. When unchecked, when these mobs go unchecked, you have a Rosewood situation, which we talked about before, that turns into a whole massacre, right? And for me, my job is de-escalation. My job is love. And I get that certain people might not know what they're acting out of, right? Uh, like all the people who were in the these lynch mobs and do, maybe the cops that were in the Fred Hampton ra raid, the people in the Emmett Till... They might not have necessarily known at that time that they are um, acting out the racist history of white supremacy. They might not know it at that time, but that doesn't mean that's not what they're doing. Just because you don't know doesn't make it not what you're doing. Yeah, so, and, and again, once the media leaves, like once the Black Lives Matter protests are over and the dust settles... That's when everybody who actually was hating can get busy and do what they need to do, right? And when I say that, I mean attack and kill the protesters that they hated. Because when, when the spotlight is there, you can't do it in the spotlight. Now, they used to. They used to. And they still do. When the spotlight is there, it's too hot. But when it dulls down, it's a lot easier to try to take these people out. And I've seen it in my own life. It's crazy. While I was doing the protest... I'm walking with thousands of people in the streets. Every single news camera in the city, name a news camera, following me, working with me. After that, and we're still fighting the same fight. We're feeding people in the streets. We're fighting for the, the same issues that we were fighting before the cameras came. Still fighting for them. And you notice people pull back. When they see that, that energy that comes with being, when it's all good and to make themselves look good and to not be a seem like they're not down with Black Lives Matter, right? 
even though their parents were alive for all of this stuff that I'm talking about, their grandparents were alive. My grandparents were alive for this racist stuff that we're talking about. Were terrorized. Um, so their parents were alive and were a, a part of that terrorism that was happening. Now they want to show up and pretend like they're not a part of the problem. I've, I've seen it happen. It's just so crazy to me. Like, it's so unfortunate that people will want to stand with you in that moment. And once it actually gets hard and tough, they want to leave and join the racist mob and side with the racist mob and show that they were never down for it at all. Like they were just down for it to not look bad at the moment. But as soon as all that stuff dies down, they're with the racist mob status quo. That's how stuff never changes. That's how it does not change. <laughs> Paper, yeah. And that brings me to the last point of our, well, I'll say something else. Because of that too, when I meet people, including uh, when I meet people, you know, dating, uh, friends, I don't always give out all of my information. I don't tell people necessarily where I live, what stop I'm off of. They might not know my real anything, right? Um, out of protection, safety. You know, for me as an activist, this is some of the same strategies that I employ. You know, I people don't know if I'm just meeting someone, just getting to know somebody, maybe I've known them for a couple months. I'm not going to tell them everything uh, about me because you never know who is getting close to you just to kill you or have reasons to take you down. And I've literally had this happen to me before in my life. So now I'm like very cautious of who knows what info about me um, and how much they know. And yeah, I've had to move completely differently um, since the protests started getting bigger and having more attention. And it's been interesting. It's been interesting. I'm used to this. So I get it, but certain people aren't, and they're more focused on being palatable to brands and getting followers and things like that. And for me, it's just about, I want change. My whole plan has always been inspire as many possible people as possible and get as big as possible to use that to funnel it towards change. You know, um, because I, I could be doing so many other things with my talents, but why not put my talent, my mind, my energy towards change and love? Because I know the history of this country. I know what happened, right? I know what's happening and I'm not scared. And this is just phase one. I'm really not scared. So yeah, that, that brings me to Breonna Taylor. The, the last part I want to talk about this as far as black terror, black lives and white terror. This is the last point with that. And Breonna Taylor, you all know a lot about this. So I'm not even going to go too much into it. And we had a, had several protests uh, about her murder, several protests about the acquittal of her killers. That's another thing with the um, Emmett Till killing. That is crazy. The people that killed Emmett Till, the, oh my goodness, this is the main point right here. The Emmett Till killing, the people that killed Emmett Till, they got off scot-free, all white jury, got off scot-free and then admitted two years later in a magazine that they did kill Emmett Till and how they did it and all these other things, right? But couldn't be prosecuted again because of double jeopardy in our racist justice system, knowing if they were black, they would have find a, found a way to put them behind bars. Emmett Till killers got off. Fred Hampton, 99 shots, killed him, innocent. 
his killers were justified and got off scot-free. Racist Chicago police. Racist FBI justified and got off scot-free. Of course, the people in Rosewood, an entire town burned to the ground, people massacred. No one went to jail. No one went to jail. No one got arrested. Got off scot-free. Lynchings. These people didn't go to jail. They didn't get it. They get off scot-free. Breonna Taylor. They were there with a no-knock raid to search her house for drugs because of drugs, which is another thing that they've used, the war on drugs, to really be a war on black people. For drugs. They end up killing her. I think six or seven shots she got. They ended up killing her. We wouldn't even know this story if it wasn't for her boyfriend who survived, who survived the attack. They end up killing her. Killers get off scot-free for her murder. And they don't even search the house for drugs. At the end of the day, they never even search the drug the house for drugs. They never even searched the house for drugs after that. So it was like you just went there to kill somebody. The drugs didn't even matter at that point. In my experience, the people that did this called the cops on me and, and, and accused me of all these things. They're not, they're still being protected by white people. They're not going to jail. The false accusations, you know, spreading lies and rumors, they're not going to jail. Getting off scot-free, the white mob, leaning into the old racist tropes that they always use. This has been Black Lives, White Terror, and the purpose of this was to focus on how, you know, black people just in living have had to endure terrorism uh, in this country and how it has gone unchecked and how it's still happening, how this country was founded on it and how the media has helped to perpetuate it. Uh, we talked about birth of a nation to start. We talked about lynchings. We talked about the Rosewood massacre. Uh, we talked about Emmett Till. We talked about Fred Hampton. I gave some of my personal experience. And um, we talked about Ferguson. We also talked about um, Breonna Taylor and some of the Black Lives Matter protests. So if you guys enjoyed this, donate to our GoFundMe or Cash App, Paperboy the Prince. People are like, yo, why are you asking? Because when I do this work, my life is put on the line. White people get to talk this talk and not walk in danger. When I do this work, my life is put on the line. My reputation is put on the line. I'm a target. I'm put on lists time and time again, you know? And I have to do so much work to not seem threatening on top of that. So much work to not seem threatening, right? Because they're looking for any reason for me to be out, like any reason to, to shut me up, any reason to shut me down, any good reason to shut me up or shut me down, they'll find. If you guys like this, let me know. I'll do more of them. This went longer than I wanted. It was supposed to be <laughs> like 45 minutes. It ended up being uh, close to an hour and 20 minutes. So I'm probably going to cut this in two segments and post it. <laughs> Paper. Yeah, so we're going to have more lectures. Please do your research on these issues. There's tons of text written about them. Yeah, we'll talk more soon. <laughs> Paper. Yeah, it's our time. One love. Peace.